NFL Show, part of the Mojo Sports Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode here on the Mojo Sports Network. It's already round 17 of the AFL, eight more games to go in the home and away season. So many implications up for stake, snakes and ladders at its finest. And to preview all the games with me for round 17 is Nathan Jennings. Nathan, hello to you. Yuri, how are you going, mate? Yeah, great as usual and great to have you back on the program as always to preview what should be an absolutely blockbuster round of footy. I think we almost say it's cliche round in, round out, but this has more implications than ever before. So we'll skip past tonight's game, Richmond-Sydney, because that's also another eight-point game itself with both teams trying to vie for that top eight spot. Sydney, of course, well, basically shot themselves in the foot with poor kicking last Friday night at the hands of Geelong and... Well, Richmond, I don't think any of us saw that coming, the 81-point demolition at the hands of Brisbane. So we'll allow that to bypass. We'll get straight to tomorrow night's game, Western Bulldogs and Collingwood. And I think by all reports, this is a sold-out game as well between the two teams under the roof at Docklands. And most of the games between the sides have been sold out over the years as well. I think 2009, 2010 had quite big crowds at Docklands. So we'll go through the team changes first up, starting with the Bulldogs. So Ed Richards is back in from that hamstring injury, which he's actually recovered quicker than expected. The outs of the Bulldogs, Mitch Hannon and Anthony Scott, the sub, and Riley West was the sub last round. As for Collingwood, Jordan Degoe returns after the three-game suspension for his bump on West Coast Elijah Hewitt back in round 12. Ash Johnson returns to the side after playing in the VFL last weekend. Braden Maynard, of course, copped those couple of shoulder stingers the last couple of weeks. He'll miss tomorrow night's game, as will Brody Marchek with a bit of hamstring tightness. And Harvey Harrison, who's been playing exceptionally well since making his debut against West Coast in round 12, has been dropped by, I think, most likely will be the sub for tomorrow night's game. So what do you make of this as well, Nathan? Because under the roof and Collingwood's frantic style of play, the Bulldogs, of course, for many years at Docklands have always reveled under the Etihad Stadium roof. How do we sort of see this game pointing out in a way? Because I see in one retrospect being a very high-scoring game, but at the other same time as well, maybe the Bulldogs will look to try and hopefully slow down the Collingwood juggernaut tempo of pace. Yeah, I think you touched on it. I can very easily see this being a Friday night uh, shootout, really, to be quite honest. Like, I think at times both teams defensively are a little bit vulnerable. Um, and generally, generally do like to play that quicker style, you know, direct football. Um, and you know, you just look at the Bulldogs' inferences and adding Ed Richards back into that um, that lineup and giving them that run off a half back is sort of sort of angling a little bit towards that sort of game style. And you know, you go back to last week and see what the Bulldogs did, um, and they work well in very short bursts. I guess you know they'll turn it on for five or ten minutes just like they did against Fremantle in that fourth quarter. And in the blink of an eye, 10 minutes, and that game was over because they piled on five goals. And I don't see that being any different on, on tomorrow night, Friday night's game. Um, and Collingwood work in exactly the same way and sort of a big loss, um, you know, in the back line with Braden Maynard. But, you know, adding, adding uh, Jordan McDowie back into the mix with what Nick Dacos has done over the last couple of weeks as a full-time midfielder, I think now that gives Collingwood flexibility in regards to where they can and can't play um, their players. You know, Jack Crisp is someone that's starting to find form as well through that midfield and, um, you know, adding to go in, whether he plays half forward or through the middle or both. I think he's that sort of linchpin player for Collingwood that can really flip a game. 
The one that I'm really interested on, though, is the ruck battle. And I think we spoke about this last week as well with the Bulldogs and what Tim English can offer. And we sort of saw that a little bit last week where he had the ability to run off of um, John Darcy, who's not the most mobile ruckman. This week's probably a little bit different. Both Darcy Cameron and Mason Cox are those mobile players that can probably run with Tim English more. So I think where Tim English now can get his advantage, and then with that being said, the Bulldogs midfield, is his ruck craft, which Cox and Cameron don't have. Obviously, this is a, a, a battle of the midfields. We know they can score. They, we know that they can defend for the best part. So I think this game's going to be one of the midfield. And I'm not sure what you think, Yuri, but I reckon if Tim English can get his hands on the ball first and give the likes of Bonten Pelly and McRae and Smith and you know all the other boys that run through there for them, that will probably put the Bulldogs in a bit of a favour in this game. What do you think? I think it's going to be exceptionally close, Nathan. And I think the big thing about Tim English since he made his debut back in 2017 is each season, I think he's gone that little bit stronger when it comes to the physicality of the ruck. And I think this season alone, he's just only substantially gotten better and better. And I think the thing now with not just ruckmen with their hitouts in terms of around the stoppages, but also their ability to play as an extra midfielder. And that's what English has at his disposal. He can get 20, 25 disposals and he can at least grab four to six clearances a game by just taking the ball out of the ruck stoppage and hacking it forward, say, 25 to 30 metres. And that's a valuable commodity in itself, especially for Ruckman. And that's where he's improved. And, of course, I think at times his set-shot goal-kicking has been a bit 50-50, but... What he's able to do, though, in all different facets of the game is what's really transcended, I think, the Western Bulldogs' surge. Of course, they had that three-game skid, but the last couple of games to get their season back on track and to be basically shouting distance to the top four, I think there's so many elements. And he's the barometer out of many. And we can, of course, point to Marcus Bontempelli being the number one main catalyst for why the Bulldogs' engine, when they're up and running and up and barking, is so successful. So, again, he gets on the leash as well because both Cameron and Cox will interchange between the ruck and up forward. And, of course, with Darcy Cameron being, I think he's a very good mark as well for his size and so with Mason Cox as well when he's up and going. So that thing alone, it's going to really stretch out English, but this is also a great test as well because this is, the next tier where the Bulldogs were when they were making their run all those seasons go on route to the 62-year drought premiership. And Collingwood only a couple of years ago were, were basically in the mire, but now to where they are where really no one expected them to be anyway. So again, those whole different elements combining into tomorrow night's game, it should just be mouthwatering. That's the word to use because – the sides over the years, Nathan, have always had these close battles at Docklands and it doesn't matter really where both teams have are on the ladder, even though I think those latter years in the 2000s, from I think about 2008 to 2010, both sides were basically residing in the top four when all those close encounters took place. So again, this is basically the same position anyway. The Bulldogs are what, sixth on the ladder, Collingwood's on top of the ladder and you just can't see this game being say, between a two-goal margin at best for mine? 
Yeah, look, I think, as you sort of mentioned, this has massive implications on the ladder as well, not just from a, a top two perspective, but for the bottom four, the top four rather as well. So obviously Melbourne's hiccup last week against GWS and their vulnerabilities over the last couple of weeks has really opened the door. And in every single one of the Western Bulldogs pushes for winning premierships over the last what, since 2016, since so the last seven years, they've never finished in the top four. So you've always got to wonder what confidence will they get and what ease of a run will they get if they do finish top four as well. So I'm actually picking an upset in this one. I think Collingwood are vulnerable. A couple of out with Majek and Maynard, I think they make a bit of a difference. I think the biggest factor, though, is Marvel. Marvel's always throwing up interesting games, weird results, whatever else, and the Bulldogs play that ground well. Um, and Collingwood are quite foreign to Marvel as well, and you know they've had a couple of losses as well in their last show, in their last few games there as well. So I'm actually picking the Bulldogs again in a close one, but I'm actually picking the upset and Bulldogs win. Yeah, I've just got the pies narrowly. I think Nathan as well, even though the absence of Brody Marchek, I think they're able to find a versatility in a way with their midfield, of course, impacting the scoreboard and just the whole array of different options that they have, which really catches opposition sides off guard. So I think it will suit them perfectly with their game style and how they go hell to skeletal when they really catch teams on the back foot. So I think Magpies for mine narrowly, but this is going to be absolutely one quarter of a game. We'll turn our attention now to, well, a game which really is pretty dull, you could describe in a way as well. Brisbane and West Coast at the Gabba. And yes, we have to look at last Sunday's encounter Probably for the first time, well, yes, since round two, West Coast actually least displayed some ticker hay against St Kilda, pushed them all the way they possibly could, even though the Saints end up winning by eight points. So we'll go through the lineups first, starting with Brisbane. Dane Zorko returns to the side. Also with Madden and Jared Lyons, who's really found himself out of favour this season. Jack Gunston, too, after dropping himself a couple of weeks ago. Lincoln McCarthy, of course, serving that suspension. Jared Berry injured as well. Josh Dunkley, he was subbed out last Thursday night in that demolition job of Richmond. He's out with a calf injury. Callum Archie suffered a concussion and is under the AFL's 12-day mandatory concussion protocols. And Darcy Sob, Darcy Fort, shall I say, was last week's sub and may likely be the sub once more against the Eagles. As for West Coast, Jeremy McGovern makes his return for the first time since round three. And Tim Kelly, who missed last week due to illness, is back in the side. Shannon Hearn, yet again, is out injured, as is Luke Shuey and Harry Barnett, the West Coast Eagles ruckman. The sub, he's out, but I think at this stage, most likely will be the sub yet again. So we'll probably scan through this one pretty quickly, Nathan, because the odds for this game were startling. Brisbane were about a dollar, and you'll not believe this, West Coast $34. It's pretty contrasting, right? Yeah, look, I think it speaks to where the two teams are at. Probably the two things that I'll choose to focus on for this game is one, firstly, I think it's great that Jeremy McGovern's back, you know, pretty pretty bad hamstring injury all the way back in round three, as you mentioned. But again, it's the same story for West Coast where it's not their young kids that are letting him down. It's their senior players. And again, Sh- uh, Shui, uh, Shui, sorry, who played probably one of his better games as captain of the football club last week is out with injury, along with Shannon Hearn. And these are players that need to be there to sort of help nurture the journey of these young kids that, you know, we saw last week are sort of holding up their end of the deal or end of the bargain as such uh, with their performances. And then from a Brisbane perspective, I think it's more of a – competitive selection uh, take that I want to look at here where you've got 
Zorko, Gutson and Lyme all coming in who you would have thought on their day are all best 22 players. And then you look at McCarthy will come back from his suspension and he's a best 22 player. Josh Dunkley, whether it's a week or two or three, he will be a best 22 player. Jared Berry and Calamar Chia are also pushing as well. So I think now what Brisbane have... The fact that they've blighted a number of young kids over the last month or so, along with all these experienced players that are, one, coming out, coming back, but also two that are leaving the team this week as well. Chris Fagan is now in a very, very good position where he realistically has up to 30 best 22 players to choose from, which I think is what Brisbane need if they're going to make a genuine push towards, you know, breaking that curse of the MCG and winning finals and whatever else and actually getting over the hump and, and potentially winning a flag this year. So, look, from a result perspective, it's a foregone conclusion. I think Brisbane win, and I think the biggest thing for Brisbane is health to make sure that they win the game, they win it healthily, and they get through with a clean slate of health as well. So it's Brisbane for me. Oh, absolutely ditto on those points, Nathan, too. I think the biggest thing, I think, to take away for Brisbane is, of course, their GABA record since 2019 is absolutely incredible. I think it's 49 wins for the last 54 games, which I think just speaks volumes for itself. But also for a West Coast perspective too, Nathan, and you touched on outstandingly as well. Their youngsters, Elijah Hewitt, had an impact as well, kicked that lovely crumbing goal. I think it was with eight minutes left or something in the third quarter, which basically he got the crowd on its feet. I think they were up 21 points at stage. So they've at least showed something for a week. Now the biggest question is going to the Gabba Fortress and at least showing some more ticker hay in a way for more than a half. If they do it for three quarters, you'll give big, green tick boxes everywhere just for the competitive standpoint. So I think that's the real assessor in the way for West Coast, just for these remaining eight home and away season games. Yes, they probably won't win anymore. Maybe the North Melbourne game, I think it's in round 20, they'll give themselves every chance of securing the four points in that game. But just for this Saturday as well, as they did against St Kilda, and I think both the three of us a couple of episodes ago when we were previewing the Sydney West Coast game just asked for some resolute resilience and barely got that at all. So hopefully, fingers crossed for West Coast, that that doesn't happen yet again. But Brisbane should be winning this game between probably eight to ten goals for mine. So we'll just see how that sort of transpires come the opening bounce on Saturday afternoon. We'll turn our attention now to the Twilight game and the Giants for at least the last five games have catapulted themselves right back into the top eight conversation. They've won four of their last five games. They take on Hawthorne who've been, well, unfortunately the last fortnight has pretty much undone all their hard work, at least for those magnificent wins over St Kilda and Brisbane the past fortnight before that. So we'll start first with the Giants lineup in terms of the ins and outs and Lockie Whitfield, the big return back for the Giants with his creativity off half back. Nick Haynes, the sub, he's out surprisingly for whatever reason. We don't know exactly why. Ryan Angwin, the sub, he's also out and Angwin was the sub last weekend. As for Hawthorne, Denver Granger Barras, who's found himself on the outer of Hawthorne's back six this season. He comes into the side, as does Tyler Brockman and Jamie Jarman Impey. The outs for Hawthorne, Sam Butler's been omitted. Harry Morrison's been omitted, as has Lloyd Meek. And Luke Bruce will miss the goal sneak with a throat injury. So both sides back in round five, Nathan, had a thrilling game. Harry Himmelberg, of course, took that. Basically won the mark of the year contender marks and the Giants end up winning by two points in that, uh, by memory, it was the gather round 
clash as well, all the way back in round five in South Australia. But it's a far different parallels to, to the way the sides are going at the moment. The Giants are just hitting their straps nicely at this stage. They've only really had one slip-up this year all the way in round nine against Collingwood and Hawthorne. Well, it's pretty much undone all their hard work that they've done two rounds before that with two pretty disappointing defeats. So how do we sort of make in terms of where both sides are at as well, but also just from a stand viewpoint of where I think both sides really trying to aim for for the, the remaining under two months this home and away season? Yeah, I think, as you mentioned, you know, ever since the uh, the win that Hawthorne had out of Brisbane at the MCG through that bye period, they've been really, really disappointing. And I think you do come to expect that from a team that is going through what they're going through, which is, you know, a massive rebuild and brighting young kids. But um, one thing that has been missing from Hawthorne over the last couple of weeks is it does seem to be like that effort or that care at times as well. They've been quite, you know, careless with the football. And at times, you know, you probably can question you know, their effort at times, which, you know, I don't like doing, but it has been quite evident. Um, and I think that's sort of then spoken true in the results, and especially Carlton. Like, you know, Carlton aren't a great football team and, you know, they really sort of ragdolled them as such. So I, I will look for a response from Hawthorne this week, but I think the bigger talking point is GWS. And you sort of mentioned outside of that blowout they had, um, you know, quite a while ago against Collingwood, they've been competitive in every single one of their games, either getting up or narrowly losing. And I look through their lineup, and they are a very, very well-balanced team, I think. They've got this really good mix of their senior players with Toby Green and Cornelio. Um, you know, Tom Green is that young midfielder, Finn Callahan out on the wing. Um, you know, they got Sam Taylor back from his injuries. So that sort of solidifies their back line now as well with like Buckley and Cumming as well. And their forward line is getting it done. Someone like a Xavier O'Halloran is you know, having a career career best year and Toby Green's going to do Toby Green things. And if I'm a team that's playing DWS in the next eight rounds, I'm quite worried. One, because they've obviously got now a legitimate chance to making finals, but two, that they're not an easy out. They're, you don't basically mean as the good old, you know, easy four-point DWS Giants of, of old. And I think that's got a lot to do with Adam Kingsley. And, you, you know, it takes time for a new coach coming in to implement their system and the players to understand and adapt and play the way the coach wants. And I think now that sort of orange tsunami, you know, running in waves sort of a, a, a game style is being shown here. And look, my prediction is that GWS win this game, but I was bullish on them at the start of the season. And I'm not saying they're going to make finals, but they're going to be a very, very tough out for Hawthorne in the following seven rounds um, for teams that are looking to make finals, but also to try and put themselves in the best position they can. So, look, you know, GWS win this one, but they're a massive watch over the next eight weeks um, around how they can potentially shake up the finals race. Oh, they definitely got things clicking at the moment, the Giants, Nathan. And the other... I think the last couple of weeks as well, you mentioned upon Sam Taylor's return after missing, I think it was basically eight weeks with that hamstring injury, which he suffered against Brisbane all the way back in round six. Did an outstanding job holding Jai Amos goalless. And last week, I think he played on Ben Browns watching that game. And although it was in pretty raining conditions up in Alice Springs, he did another marvellous job. And it's known the wise one, the best young key backman in the competition, especially since I'd say about 2021, probably best as well. He had that outstanding game against Geelong at the Cadre. I think it was in round 21 when he held, pretty sure it was Tom Hawkins goalless by memory as well. That was also one of his other outstanding games of many too. Harry Himmelberg's the other one that for at least the past fortnight 
coach Adam Kingsley swung him down back. And we saw exactly the same thing last season as well when interim coach Mark McVeigh did exactly the same thing. I think it was prior to around round t- 10 games, should I say, against West Coast. And Himmelberg just went leaps and bounds. And that's been another smart move yet again. And one that I think is also taking a lot of the pressure off Nick Haynes as well to intercept and rebound. Of course, got Lockie Ash there, which I thought at the start of this season, Ash would play more of the Tigers roles. He did last season. He played it to such great effect. But it's also just that extra dimension that the Giants have. It's the combination that intercept marking and run and carry off half back and through the midfield. We've spoken on numerous occasions about Stephen Cornelio's, well, the last couple of seasons, he's just basically back to the vintage Stephen Cornelio that we all know, racking up the ball with his contested possession work and clearances and the metres gained and everything. So, so this whole combination of elements that the Giants have got, which is basically resonating what they did during that era of 2016 to 2019 when they were competing for premierships. And ultimately, of course, that 2019 year, they got at the hands of Richmond. But this has been one quick turnaround thus far for the Giants, and I can't see them dropping this game against Hawthorne, especially what the Hawks have dished up. I expect Hawthorne at least show more competitive desire, though, and not be blown out to the tune of 10 goals. But with with the way Giants are playing, though, they can go from first gear to second gear to third gear to fourth gear in a matter of minutes, and they're awfully hard to stop when it, when they're transpiring in that fashion. So we'll turn our attention now from the Giants-Hawks game to the two Saturday night games, starting first with St. Kilda and Melbourne under the roof at Marvel Stadium. We'll start first with the Saints' ins and outs. Zane Cordy returns to the team, as does Zach Jones. Jack Billings as well, returning from that long-term injury. Ryan Burns has been omitted. Josh Battle suffered that concussion last week and will miss. Jack Higgins is injured. That's a big loss as well. And Brad Hill after... Yes, that nasty knee injury as well. I think he got tackled his knee, saw buckled under him, and luckily it wasn't anything significant with that knee injury. Cooper Sharman was the sub last weekend against West Coast. As for Melbourne, James Jordan returns to the side, as does Charlie Spargo. And this is a great story as well. Taj Woden, the son of 2000 Brownlow medalist Shane Woden, will make his debut. He's been basically displaying excellent form in the VFL, so it's great to see him get his opportunity the outs for Melbourne with Joel Smith being omitted. James Harms, yet again, for some reason alone this season, he's found himself on the fringes. He's been omitted, as is Kate Chandler, after a pretty quiet five weeks. And Bailey Fritch, this is the big one as well for Melbourne. He's out for seven to eight weeks with a foot injury. And Jack Melksham was the Demon sub last weekend. So I think when you look at this all in the picture, Nathan, I think scoring is going to be extremely difficult to go by. Do you make that right assessment as well? I think it's going to be the opposite of the Friday night Marvel game, whereas the Saturday night Marvel game is going to be, a, a you know, who can maybe get to 60 points and win. Um, look, you know, Melbourne have struggled to score, which is so strange considering how powerful of an offense they were in their 2021 premiership season. Now, look, they can win the ball. They can defend and get the ball into their um, forward 50. That's not an issue, but the issue is how the ball is going in and then what their bigs and their smalls are doing, you know, you mentioned before, Cade Chandler, who started the season off really, really well, has gone into a massive cold patch. You know, Cozzy Pickett, who, you know, the realistic pick for an all-Australian small forward at the start of the year is definitely not playing up to the expectations that we had on him. And then, you know, it doesn't help with Bailey Fritch. Bailey Fritch is their number one, uh, you know, lead-up forward. And seeing him go out now hurts. And I think now this is a really, really good opportunity for Ben Brown 
to put his hand up and say, Simon Goodwin, I am your number one forward, back me in. He had that opportunity in 2021, and for whatever reason, with form and going out of favour, he's no longer that guy. I think for Melbourne to be successful, he needs to be the guy. He's proven it when he was at North Melbourne and in his time at Melbourne that he can be the guy. This is the perfect opportunity, what would be reasonably dry conditions under the roof at Marvel, to sort of be that lead-up forward and go back and bang a few goals in because I think from a Melbourne perspective, they want to play well, – sorry, they need to play top four football this year if they have any chance of, you know, being a premiership team again. If they lose this game, they come right back to the pack and are in danger of not only missing a top four, but potentially finals as well because that's how close it is. Then you look on the flip side of St Kilda and defensively Ross Lyon has them humming. I think they got exposed a little bit last week against West Coast and I'd probably put that down to more of a mentality thing of having that long flight over to Perth and then knowing they're going to win and probably not sort of hitting you know, their top gear until very late in the game when they blew West Coast away. My concern, though, for St Kilda are their two, the two big outs in my eyes being Brad Hill. He's been fantastic off halfback this year, giving that run and spread that I think from a defensive-minded team you need, losing that speed. So I think someone like Naziah Wanganine Miller, sorry, mouthful, is going to be really, really key to sort of fill that Brad Hill role this week. And the other one is Jack Kickers. He's an absolute live wire. I couldn't believe the other day he's only 22 years of age. 23, I think. He's been around forever and a day, it feels like. And losing him is that key, you know, that key small forward players, a really big loss for them. So I think, you know, from a St Kilda midfield perspective, then ball movement to try and negate the uh, defensive skills of May and Lever are huge because Max King needs to fire. He sort of hasn't had a big game in a few weeks. So this is a massive game and I really struggle to sort of figure out who I'm going to tip. Initially, I thought St Kilda, purely because it's at, at Marvel Stadium, they play the ground quite well and, you know, under the roof, again, weird things happen. But I think Melbourne and their credentials and a, a guy by the name of Christian Petrarca will blow this game out of the water. And I, I, I think Melbourne will win off the back of a Christian Petrarca three-brown-low vote game. 30 disposals, two or three goals, given his sort of goal-kicking woes. I think he bounces back and really puts Melbourne on on his back um, and they get over the line here. But, you know, again, no Clayton Oliver. I'm not sure what you read into it, though, Yuri. Yeah, Dowser, again, by all reports as well, he looked pretty frustrated as well. And, yes, he hasn't had, in terms of an injury, where it's kept him out for longer than three, four weeks, Nathan. So I think that's the... Biggest frustration for him not being out in the ballpark and him believing he's up and ready and ready to get back on the field. So, again, they're just trying to be ultra-cautious, I think, Melbourne too. And whether we see him back next week, we'll we'll find out by midweek, right, next week. So I think time will tell on that. I think the other big part as well, and you spoke about extremely well, Nathan, with Christian Petrarca's, do they float him forward for brief stints as well, considering their scoring-wise? Since I think after about round nine onwards, they've averaged under 70 points, which is, we almost go back to 2019 territory in Melbourne when they had so many inside 50s, as they did last week against the Giants. I think they had about 73 entries and could only muster five goals. And hopefully for them, it's not the same replica once more as they had five seasons ago where... They basically couldn't hear the side of the barn. They were getting all the four territory dominance and couldn't capitalise. So, again, I think we'll find out a lot more come Saturday night on that part as well. And as for the Saints, I think they can't fall into the trap of what they did against Brisbane round 15 when Harris Andrews basically had a field day at the intercept marking. And unfortunately, Max King was basically 
double teamed at the best of times and they couldn't hit up any other options if it wasn't King on a one-on-one marking contest. So they fall trapped to that again with May and Lever. Then I can't see them generating a winning score. And I think that's been a issue so far this season for St Kilda. I think scoring the best of times has eluded them apart from that Gold Coast game in round four, which I think is a season high 113 points they registered. So again, those combinations, if they at least get that going, then they'll be right in the game as well. But if May and Lever and Melbourne's midfield, which of course, once they get on top, then it's going to be a difficult proposition, I think, for St Kilda to overcome. So Melbourne for mine, I think narrowly as well, but don't be surprised if this game's an absolutely slogfest in a way. But I guess we'll find out more about that come the opening bounce. We'll turn our attention now to the other Saturday night game as well in Port Adelaide. Well, 12 straight wins. Need to say no more at the moment. They're just thundering along. And last Saturday night, Dan Houston, cometh the man, cometh the hour after that mm-hmm. match-winning goal just outside 50 with a wet ball against Essendon at the MCG to give Port Adelaide a four-point win. And Gold Coast, well, again, all the rumblings about Stuart Jew this weekend about whether his job's on the line. Well, I guess we'll find out more of the ticker about the Gold Coast Suns on Saturday night at the Adelaide Oval. How do we sort of make of this as well? Because Port Adelaide's free-flowing game, when it gets going, is, well, it's been like that all season as well from round three onwards. And Gold Coast have shown at the best of times that they can produce their best footy, but when it's off, there's probably streets and yards way behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I, I, I agree. And, you know, it kills me to say that Port Adelaide are in phenomenal form at the moment. And I think probably the biggest upside for Port Adelaide, a bit like we spoke about for Brisbane, is their depth. You sort of look at the players going out of their team this week. You know, Dace Burgoyne, good young player. Quinton Narkle has been a bit of a cult hero as such since he got the mid-season trade um, over, or mid-season draft rather, over to Port Adelaide. And Riley Bonner as well, you know, he hasn't probably done too much wrong to lose his spot. But I think for me, the biggest X factor at the moment for Port Adelaide is Junior Rioli. Now, obviously, a big off-season acquisition for Port Adelaide couple of interruptions with injury and a suspension in there as well. So he sort of hasn't had that consistency and continuity in his game yet and probably hasn't played quite up to the standards yet that Port Adelaide had hoped when they got him. Everything else is humming for Port Adelaide. And if Junior Rioli, as that X-Factor player, can go up and be that real dominant small forward like he was, especially back in his prime West Coast days, I think that's what's going to elevate Port Adelaide to be even more of a dominant force. Now, sort of see what Quinton Narkel can do. So someone with a little bit more polish um, of a Rioli, I think that's what's going to tip him over the edge. I am, though, interested to see that they did drop that Dante, I'm not going to try his last name, Dante V, uh, who debuted last week. And there's still no, um, uh, what's his name? The Ruckman, Scott Lysett. No Scott Lysett. Going up against a big boy in Jared Witts. They've got Sam Hayes in there. So I'm intrigued to sort of see how that matchup goes. But from then a Gold Coast perspective, the two things I'm looking for, one is a response. Your coach has been dragged through the water all week off the back of their poor performance against Collingwood. I think it's important, not just from a Stuart Dew narrative, but from a club perspective, that they have to respond. Now, they don't have to beat Port Adelaide, Port Adelaide because it's at home and they're the, they're the hottest team in the competition right now, but they need to respond. And I think the secondary to that is then getting Tuk Miller back into that midfield as that ball-winning, elite-running captain midfielder that he is. Those two combined, I think, is a massive win for Gold Coast in the fact that they're getting that experience back. But, look... 
Port Adelaide across the board are so well-rounded. They're so well-coached and they will win this game. But I think the biggest thing that I will look for is a response from the Gold Coast Suns. And if we don't get it, whether it's Stuart Dew or whether it's personnel change or whatever it might be, I think something does need to change that club. Yuri, I don't know where you stand at it, but this is something that is frustrating me a little bit because, one, we're not seeing the progression that we thought we were going to get out of Gold Coast. But then, two, Stuart Dew, I feel sorry for the bloke. His, his name is getting pulled through, you know, pulled through everything so much at the moment. It's basically identical of last season, right, Nathan? They were basically in the top eight frame and ultimately blew their chance. And even 2014 in the Gary Ablett era, I think after round 10 that season, they were 7-3 after beating the Western Bulldogs, placed in the top four. And, of course, Gary does his shoulder in that Brent McCaffrey tackle and this season goes on a downward spiral from there. And I think, of course, getting Tuke Miller back for his first game since round six, that knee injury is going to significantly bolster that midfield. Noah Anderson and Matt Rowe, we've touched upon at significant depth, have been tremendous. But it's just that next sort of level of consistency in the way of Gold Coast, which oh, it's perplexing enough as well because you think as well the tall forward caper with Ben King and Jack Lacocious, when they get on top, they can carve up teams seamlessly. That's the big thing as well. And the back line with Sam Collins and Charlie Ballard, you think of those two and match them up against any other two key defenders down back, they're right up there, Nathan. So mm. it's almost, I think, the second tier in a way. It's not the top tier. The mm. next tier they always talk about is where it's lacking at the best of times. And I think that's what's really holding the Suns back as well because we saw last Saturday against Collingwood where it was almost the equivalent to witches' hats. And that's the worst description to point out to any football team when you get hammered from pillar to post to the tune of 78 points that – the team was basically witches' hats all around the field and barely could show any or slash muster any fight whatsoever. So when we find that out, come the opening bounce as well in the first five minutes, whether the Suns are switched on will tell a lot more about whether they're riding the contest right up to their nose at a three-quarter time or whether this game's over by half time, or whether they're six, seven goals down, which would be by far the worst result. But Surely they can at least take some inspiration for their first ever win against Port Adelaide back in 2011. Surely that has to be ringing their ears, right? Uh, look, you would have thought so. Um, you would have thought so, Yuri, but I, I sort of tend to agree with your comment. I think the the gap between their best players and their worst players is too big at the moment. Um, so, you know, probably their best 12 to 14 players are, you know, sort of in the elite category as such, or, you know, at least solid players. And then those sort of, you know, 15 through 23 are sort of a little bit off the pace. And you're right. That's where they're sort of getting caught out. And I think those fringe players are what's going to make the difference. And you look at a good team like Port Adelaide and you look at their fringe players that are sort of in and out of the team, they're still sort of contributors and they don't stand out like a sore thumb of a player that doesn't belong at AFL level. So... Look, you know, I'll say it again. Gold Coast have to respond. But, you know, Port Adelaide at home is a scary prospect. And if you get that, you know, 40, 45, 50,000 and, you know, that raucous crowd going, it's, it's quite an intimidating place to play at. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, even as an AFL community, we want response from Gold Coast. And I think if we do see that, that's a positive. And singing before the bounce, never tear us apart by in excess, never gets old, right, Nathan? We'll turn our attention now to the first of the three Sunday games, Geelong and North Melbourne, GMHBA Stadium. And we'll start first with Geelong's ins. Mark O'Connor returns to the team. He was a late out last week. Ollie Dempsey, Mitch Nevitt, 
Ocean Mullen, Sam Menengola, and Brandon Parfit. The outs for the Cats, Jack Collard-Jasney is out injured. Isaac Smith's been managed. And Jeb Buse, one of their best lockdown defenders, is injured. Jack Bowes was the sub last week in that draw against Sydney. As for North Melbourne, and this is a great story as well, Cooper Harvey, the son of the all-time games record holder in VFL, AFL level, Brent Harvey, he'll be making his debut. Tristan Sherry is in for his first game since the opening round against West Coast, which he suffered that syndesmosis injury in the early stages of the contest. Charlie Lazaro, also with Young and Finn Perez. The outs for the Roos, Liam Shields is out with a calf and this is a surprising one. Will Phillips, after a handful of very good games, has been omitted, and Hugh Greenwood was the sub last weekend. Well, we could probably make this one pretty short and concise as well, too, because the Kangas, by memory, haven't won a GMHBA stadium since about 2015, which is a fairly long time ago. Yeah, look, I, I, I think the one thing to not gloss over is that North Melbourne are a poor team right now. They show glimpses, but they still can't win. They haven't won a game since round two. Um, even as early as last week, they showed glimpses in the first half against the Crows where they were sort of there or thereabouts and then got blown out. And I think, again, we go back to the sort of, you know, the gap between the best and the worst players. And they've got a lot of players that aren't quite at AFL standard yet. I think, as you sort of mentioned, you know, a feel-good story of, you know, Cooper Harvey coming in. He's only got another, what, 430-plus games to go to catch up with his father. But, you know, I really enjoy that when, you know, a son of a gun makes their debut. There's just something heartwarming and special about it where that player's legacy continues and is happening twice this week. And I think it's so special. Um, and from a Geelong perspective, this is a really important game for them to get back on the straight and narrow. They've been inconsistent with their form, uh, inconsistent with their accuracy on goal. You know, they're going to win this game. And I think, you know, when it comes down to it, um, banking this win is important for them to make finals. Um, it's a fortress down there at GMHBA. So I think their run into finals really starts now and it's got to be bolstered by a big win against the Roos on, um, on Sunday. I think likewise as well, Nathan, too, just the whole record since about 2007 has just been absolutely impeccable ever since, of course, they went on that barnstorming run from about round six that year against Richmond to the tune of 157 points. Of course, that era basically all the way to the end of 2011. We'll turn our attention now to Essendon Adelaide at Marvel Stadium. And I think we'll see one thing for sure. Adelaide definitely won't kick two goals nine as they did back in round 17 of 2021 against Essen. That's a guarantee. We'll start first with the Bombers with the ends. Nick Cox, Nick Hind, and Nick Bryan. No changes. Of course, these teams, the full squad of well, 22 will be shortlisted on tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, late tomorrow afternoon, those teams will be reduced. As for the Crows, Patrick Parnell, Harry Schoenberg, Elliot Himmelberg, and also a potential debutante as well, James Borlasi as well. He's in the mix for the Crows. And the big one for Adelaide, the out, is Jordan Butts, one of their key defenders, is out with concussion. And Lachlan Scholl was the sub last weekend. Well, this should be an another corker of a contest. You could almost put this in the category of match around, Nathan, the way both sides have been playing as well. Adelaide with, well, scintillating, barnstorming, well, champagne footy, if you want to describe it that way, and the Bombers as well this season of basically from last season onwards was disarray to a side basically competing for the top eight. So can't see this game yet again being, well, close as it is in the way too, just, both sides doing what they're doing best as well. Esther on the defensive side have gone a lot better and Adelaide, the offensive game's just been completely off the charts. 
Yeah, look, I'll be lying if I said I, I haven't been thinking about this game all week. Um, you know, it's very nervous times and, you know, a very difficult match, and especially for the Crows. Marvel's a stadium, sorry, that they don't play particularly well. Um, and then on the other side of that, Essendon sort of ha- have had some really, you know, big, fun results there over the last couple of years as well. So, look, as you sort of said, it, it's a high-octane offence in the Crows versus, you know, a reasonably well-rounded and defensive-minded Essendon team. Um, I think the biggest thing from a Crows perspective is can they bring the show on the road? Um, And we've spoken about this at length all season now, and it's not just, you know, a a couple of off performances. This is a trend now for them. And I think not only is this important in the scheme of them getting confidence of winning games on the road, but this is also an eight-point game, you know. Only percentage separates these two teams at the moment. So the winner puts themselves in that box seat to sort of try and secure the seventh or eighth position on the ladder. Um, you know, I think from an Essendon perspective, it's their engine room. You know, Darcy Parrish out of the lot last week, returning from injury to sort of pair with uh, his running mate and Zach Merritt. You know, you throw someone like a Ben Hobbs in there at times as well. Jake Stringer, you know, you, you never know what he's going to deliver. I do, though, think that Essendon are still missing... Sam Draper. Now, they were lucky last week with Scott Lysette being a laid out that they weren't exposed in that area. But Riley O'Brien is arguably coming off a career best game last week. And not only is he like a sort of a hit out contest beast in regards to getting the ball into his midfielder's hands, but he's a runner. He can run. And I think, you know, for Phillips specifically, who will be their main ruckman on the weekend. They need to be able to run with O'Brien. Otherwise, I think that's something that the Crows can expose them in. The other sort of thing from a Crows perspective that I do want to talk about is the fact that I think personally James Borlase will make his debut. Now, he's a sort of a, a tweener, mid, a defender, sorry, sort of like a bit of a Tom Dude where they can play big and they can play small. Now, obviously, Jordan Butts, again, unfortunate with his concussion, but I think this opens a really, really good opportunity for the Crows to blood someone else. Um, and gets that experience in the back line. We're obviously quite inexperienced already, but I think giving him a game, giving him that taste at AFL level um, will be really, really good for him. So, look, I'm taking my Crows hat off. I do think the Crows win this game, but I can very easily see this going the other way as well. And if Essendon do get a run on, that crowd at Marvel is quite loud and quite you know intense at times. So I can see this going both ways. I will be picking the Crows. Um, you're, you're in agreement, or what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I also agree too, Nathan. I was probably sort of picking and choosing the last couple of days, and I thought Essendon's defence have been sensational this year. They're basically fifth for points per game. They basically concede under 85. I think it was about 81.3 last week when we touched on it as well, and I think it's probably around there anyway because Port Adelaide scored 78 points. The biggest task, though, is those backline matchups as well with whether who does, in a way, go to Taylor Walker. They'll probably throw, of course, Brandon Zerk Thatcher on him first. And then if that doesn't work out, then Jaden Laverde. But then who's next if Tex gets on top of them? Do they have to go over Jordan Ridley? And that's probably the last resort that they want because they want Ridley for the for the intercept marking. And where in terms of for Essendon, who do they put on Isaac Rankine? Who do they put on Josh Rochelle? They'll probably have to put, say, Nick Hind, if he's named in the team as well, on one of those two. So... Those are conundrums, I think, Eston, for, well, the first time in some time this season as well against the potency of Adelaide's forward mix is going to be the biggest 
challenge for them, I'd say, Nathan. And that's where I think when you look on paper, if Adelaide get that up and going as well and they are able to generate scores early and, of course, get, get on top of the midfield as well. And whether Ben Keyes plays that tagging role first on Zach Merritt or whether he plays the defensive key four taggers role again on, say, who knows, it could be Jaden, not Jaden Laverde, should I say, it could be um, Jordan Ridley. That may be a surprise throw of the magnets that Coach Matthew Nix decides to implement going into the game or maybe during the opening half or maybe during the second half. Guess we'll only find out when we see the action. So I think, again, Adelaide's record against Essendon as well, apart from that very lopsided defeat two years ago, is solid enough in a way, in a way too as well. I think, of course, we go back to the late 2000s and that when I think they pants Essendon to the tune. I think it was about 56 points back in 2008. And, of course, that's going a long way back down the wormhole between the head-to-head between the two sides as well. But I think, yet again, Adelaide's offense with the scoring, they get on top early now to, say, get between 11 to 12 first-half goals. And I see that being more than enough to hold Essendon at bay. And, again, for the Bombers as well, we've... Sam Wiedemann and Peter Wright as well. If those two are able to get on top as well and get the Bombers up and running in the opening half as well and they get their spread of goal kickers, if, say, if Zach Merritt, Zach Merritt imp- impacts the scoreboard and the Darcy Parrish impacts the scoreboard, Jai Caldwell impacts the scoreboard as he did late last week in the treacherous rainy conditions against Port Adelaide, then they'll be right up to their heels, Essendon. But when you look at the whole scope of the way Adelaide not just score with such effortless ease, but also defensive side where they've significantly gotten better in this last season and a half, then I think that's going to prove the major differential point, I think, towards the contest, Nathan. Yeah, agreed. Look, I think um, yeah, the midfield battle as well is intriguing. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, all Australian potential players running through there. And I think for the best part, you know, both teams have had uh, some issues with accuracy. Um, so I think, as you sort of said, if there's a team that can sort of kick accurately early and capitalise on their opportunities, I think that will go a long way to uh, winning this game and sort of getting early momentum and sort of important eight-point swing games like this, you know, is huge. So I, I think look early in the game to sort of see where the momentum swings and that could be a key indicator of who sort of comes out on top, I think. Mm, it's going to be one intriguing game, that's for sure, Nathan. There's no doubt about that. We'll turn our attention now to the final game of round 17, and this being at Optus Stadium, 2.40 bounce down WA time, Fremantle and Carlton. We'll start first with the ins for the Dockers, Sam Sturt, Corey Wagner, Carl Warner as well. He's been in tremendous form for Peel Thunder in the Waffle and Bailey Banfield. And the big one, of course, Nat Pfeiffer, not the first time this season, is out with another foot injury. Neil Rasmus, the tackling machine, was the Dockers' sub last weekend. As for the Blues, Tom DeConing makes his return after being a late scratching after a 10-goal hiding. Well, basically, it was the Blues' 10-goal hiding to Hawthorne to boost up a bit more percentage from 98 to 103. Matt Cottrell, after serving his one-game suspension. Lockie Cowan, the raking rightful kick from Tasmania, and George Hewitt was the sub last weekend for the Blues. Well, after two straight wins for the Blues, they've got their percentage up. They're back in the top eight conversation, you could say at least. And Fremantle, well, man, it's a bit of another bumper ride, that's for sure, with the inconsistent form. Yeah, Fremantle stalled again, which is really disappointing. We thought, you know, coming off those buys with a couple of big wins and, you know, looking like they've turned the corner and and really pushing back towards being a finals team like they were last year. And 
all of a sudden they've stalled. They've sort of been stagnant with their ball movement again and, you know, sticky hands around the, the, the back line and sort of, you know, not being direct with the way they play has been quite disappointing. And, um, you know, obviously the inclusion of, of Sean Darcy has been a massive win uh, for Fremantle. But I think now the the attention goes back onto their ball movement and whether or not their forwards can kick enough goals. And, um, you know, Jaya Miss is having a great season and, uh, potentially a contender for the um, Rising Star Award at the end of the season. But, you know, the fact that we're relying on Summer with such inexperience at this level still is concerning. And, you know, Sonny Walters, uh, his end of the spectrum as well has been relied on heavily as well. And then from a Carlton perspective, I think what we've seen the last couple of weeks is what we thought we were going to get from Carlton this year, which was that team that plays free-flowing, direct football, you know, dangerous midfielders, dangerous forwards, you know, a solid back line. And for whatever reason, the flick is now, the switch rather has been flicked and they're playing the football that we wanted them to. So from that perspective, I now think this is a very interesting matchup from a Carlton forward line v, um, you know, uh, Fremantle backline with Colonel Mackay are always going to be dangerous. Can the Colton small fours get on top? You know, they're a bit hit and miss at times with who they are. Jack Martin played well last week. You know, Owies and, you know, whoever else up there are dangerous, but can they get on top? Fremantle are quite a well-oiled team when it comes to a defensive perspective. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I think a lot, a lot of it's riding on someone like an Patrick Cripps and a um, and a Sam Walsh who have been up and down with their form. I think if they they can get on top and sort of get the ball going forward and putting pressure and you know sustain pressure on that Fremantle backline, like we saw last week against the Bulldogs, they're going to crack eventually, um, and that's something Carlton are capable of doing. And I'm go- I'm going to look out for that. I think, um, and that could potentially be the difference in the game. But I'm not too sure where to go with this on who to pick, Yuri. Like, what are your what are your sort of thoughts with this one? I think with an overall assessment, Nathan, too, in the last couple of weeks for Carlton, the major turnaround has been the pressure. And, of course, after, well, arguably the worst loss of the season against Essendon, which the team only mustered 33 tackles, which is an average of, what, 8.25 per quarter, which is despicable to say, to say the least. The, these, this past fortnight, they've averaged 78 tackles. That 87 last week against Hawthorne, I was watching that game, I thought right away the pressure was something that was supremely evident. And this is now the biggest question moving forward. Can the Blues replicate that pressure for against top eight sides, including Fremantle, against Port Adelaide the next week as well, Collingwood in round 20, St Kilda in round 21, Melbourne, GWS, and those remaining games to finish. That's going to be the clear emphasis. And as for the small forwards, that's been the complete retweak as well now since Lockie Fogarty's come back into the side for that Suns clash back in round 14. Jesse Motlop is now on the outer, on the outer fringes. Corey Durden still another couple more weeks away. Still, I don't see those two getting a spot back in the team anyway, so small forwards. We've got to stick with the combination of both Lockie Fogarty and Matt Owies to be our two small forwards. Jack Martin to be that medium-sized forward as well. Jack Silvani being as well that other four too. Charlie Kerner and Harry Mackay. So we'll stick with our combination moving forward. The other big part as well, and Michael Voss spoke about this as well after the Bombers' defeat, was the form with Patrick Cripps and Sam Walsh. And mentally about Cripper after he only had the 19 touches and I think it was four kicks and 15 handballs, is that he's just out of form. And, yeah, that's probably supremely 
accurate all right. And we've seen these last couple of weeks that he doesn't have to rack up, again, those big 30 or 35 disposal games. He had a 28 disposal game last week, but it was more the even contribution spread that we got from the top down to the bottom. And Chera yet again for whatever ninth, 10 straight game this season. And he's arguably leading our best and fairest best and fairest count at the moment, Nathan. He's just, he's been completely off the charts and we'll probably see that again come Sunday. So I think when you look at the whole scope as well, with Fremal in there in terms of not just pressure alone, but the small forwards as well, if they hit the scoreboard, then they're dangerous. With Michael Frederick, Lockie Schultz, Michael Walters, I think the matchup you have to look forward to as well is Adam Saad, I expect Saad to go on Walters. And who does Jordan Boyd go on to? Does he go on to a Switkowski? I think he's got the pace enough to match up with Switter, that's for sure. So I think look out for that one as well, maybe Michael Frederick. So there's a whole numerous amount of magnet switchings that the Carlton hierarchy can probably look upon to in terms of those. But also the other part as well is getting decoding back as well because, of course, yes, it worked last week with only having Lewis Young being old primary sole Ruckman, Jack Silvani backing him up against Ned Reeves and Lloyd Meek. But against Sean Darcy, who basically throws his weight around like Hulk and you can't have without a designated Ruckman going into a game. So again, this is a great test for TDK against Sean Darcy, who's arguably in all Australian contention. That's what I truly believe as well with his physicality around the contest, not just his tap work, which is outstanding. I think he averages, what, 39 hitouts per game, but also his ability to just hack the ball forward with his clearance work. And that's something where I think when Fremantle are up and going and he delivers that, then they're just a whole better side forward as well. And the other part as well with Jacob Wiedering, and he's been outstanding, I think, the second half of the season as well, Nathan, too. And this is the next big test for Jai Amos as well, who's been incredible. I think he's kicked, what, 25 goals this season. He's won the top four players who's well and truly in contention for this year's NAB's, NAB Rising Star nominee award. And I think if he can at least half the contest gets weathering and perhaps kick two, three goals on him, then the Dockers is going to be right up for the contest. So I think there's such numerous different talking points and magnets to look upon, which is ultimately going to decide the outcome as well. And Carlton enjoy playing here in Perth as well. They've had good success against Fremantle, even when they were playing at formerly Subiaco Oval, Patterson Stadium, whatever you want to call it back then. You think back to 2012, round five, Cade Simpson had an outstanding game. 2009, that Sunday afternoon game. 2011 here, all those years ago. So they've, they, for some reason, I think it's those wider expanses. I think Nathan as well with Optus Stadium, which I think, gives the Blues that luxury to play their game, which we've seen return these last couple of games. So, again, we'll find out a lot more come Sunday. And the biggest part is if their pressure's on, if they're applying more than 15 tackles per quarter, I think that's a good sign to for what's to come during the game. Yeah, agreed. And I think probably the last thing to touch on for this game as well is that realistically the, probably the loser of this match is probably out of the race for finals. Um, so from a from a you know a Carlton and Fremantle perspective, you know to stay alive in that hunt for that bottom the, the bottom half of the eight to sort of you know keep that dream alive. This is a huge game as well, and I think a lot of eyes Sunday night will be on this game as well. And 
for the winner, the season's still very much alive. And I think for the loser, unfortunately, it's probably a, a mountain too big to climb to get into finals. I'm picking Carlton. I think Carlton are in a good groove at the moment. And Fremantle, again, are in that like flux queue where they don't really know what their identity is. So I'm actually picking another update here and picking Carlton to sort of somehow crazily keep their season alive. Yeah, I think I've got the Blues narrowly as well too, Nathan. There's just, I think, something. But I guess we're going to find out a lot more in the first 10 to 15 minutes of the contest. So, again, it's going to be riveting viewing, that's for sure. And, man, this top eight is just, well, it's wacky. It's snakes and ladders. It's everything I think we hoped for. And we saw last season was arguably one of the best home and away campaigns. I think this one almost about tops it. So that's all the matches for round 17 and Wow, another episode goes by quickly, that's for sure. Anything you want to plug, Nathan, for the upcoming week too? Uh, so next week again, Tuesday night, the boys will be back to uh, to wrap up and review everything from everything football round 17 and um, we'll probably sprinkle a little bit of fantasy chat in there as well. So listen out for that coming out probably on a Wednesday afternoon. Awesome. Looking forward to it, Nathan. Great to have you on the show as always to preview round 17 and we'll look forward to chatting next Thursday around this time next week. Thanks, mate. Go Crows. And that's it for our Mojo Sports Network Round 17 preview. My name is Yuri Bilsic. Enjoy the footy this weekend and can't wait to see what transpires. See you next week.